Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Colony Drop, a Gundam podcast. My name is Brian. And my name is Isaac. This is your favorite Gundam podcast where we talk about everything from Gunpla to Gundam music, Gundam lore, Gundam ideas, the OVAs, the anime series, the movies, you name it. If it's Gundam, we're going to talk about it. Isn't that right, Brian? That is correct, Isaac. And listeners, you may notice that tonight's episode is labeled... 0079. So what do you think we're going to talk about, Isaac? There's only one thing that we could talk about. We have to, have to, listeners, talk about the original series, Mobile Suit Gundam, also sometimes called Mobile Suit Gundam 0079, because it takes place in the year Universal Century 0079. And guess what? For our 79th episode, we're here to talk about the one that started it all. When we first started this podcast, I jokingly started labeling the episodes with the double zeros. So the very first one was double O, double O, and then there was double O, O one. It wasn't coming through on the feed, the podcast feed, but it was coming through if you were downloading the episodes. They were all labeled ah. that. And I promised myself that one day, if we ever made it to double O seventy nine, that that's what we were saving the original series for. And now that day has come, hasn't it, Brian? <laughs> That's right. We're finally here, Isaac. There are some who said this day would never come. What do they have to say now? <laughs> <laughs> well, they're probably not listening. <laughs> Comment below if you know a video game that's from. Okay. Uh... <laughs> Where there's a will, there's a way, Isaac. Yes, yes, yes. And we made it. We're here. The 79th episode, and we're going to talk about the original series. I know some people think maybe... If you're starting a Gundam podcast, you should probably talk about the series first. But that's not how we do things here. Because, <laughs> because we know in the grand scheme of things, for a podcast, you can kind of scroll around and, and pick what you want through the menu. So this is the time we're actually going to talk about the original series in all its glory. Brian, did you watch this dubbed or subbed? Let me just say that. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted the full nostalgic experience, Isaac, so I went with the dub. What about you? I did the same. Shout out to Funimation <laughs> for having it available. <laughs> I did the English dub that we're all used to that I originally saw in um, back in the day, early 2000s with uh, on Toonami. I guess we should mention you can, you can watch Mobile Suit Gundam uh, on Funimation. That's probably the easiest way to watch it. That's where they have the full series with the sub and the dub. The compilation movies are on Netflix, which are only in sub. We'll probably have to review the compilation movies some other year, Isaac. We'll, we'll save that for a, a different year or something. But, yeah, um, we'll get to enjoy the jarring difference with the new footage <laughs> that they inserted into the the 1979 animation. <laughs> and then you can also get the you know the Blu-rays are out there. They're fairly cheap. I think you can get the whole series for probably sixty bucks if you find a sale. So I actually went with the Blu-rays, Isaac. I have the Blu-rays. I traded in my old. DVDs, my 10 volumes of DVDs, I shipped them off to the library as a donation <laughs> and traded them in for the nice two-volume Blu-ray set. How could you do that, though, Brian? I thought you were part of the Suncoast membership. <laughs> <laughs> well, Suncoast is no longer around, so the membership card doesn't oh, work no. anymore. <laughs> Suncoast, come back. <laughs> so, Isaac, this show was, as we said, from 1979. It aired April 1979 through January of 1980. It's 43 episodes long, or 42 if you don't count the uh, Kukuru's Doan's Island episode, which never aired here in America and did not air most other places. Right. So tonight, we are going to cover the first half, the first 21 or so episodes. And 
Isaac, I have my Gundam, the official guidebook, ready to go with the synopsis. But before I read the synopsis, the best trailer for Mobile Suit Gundam that I know of is that long Toonami promo that's narrated by Peter Cullen, who's the voice of Optimus Prime. Do you know the one I'm talking about? Yes, I do. <laughs> that is fantastic. Do you have a recording of it? or like? <laughs> so listeners, you can find this if you've not listened to it. You can find it on YouTube. It's been uploaded several times by different people over the years. You want the version that's a minute and 30 seconds long. It's usually called the long promo. Funny enough, when I was getting together my notes for this episode, Isaac, there's a guy on YouTube. Uh, he uploads a lot of Toonami stuff. His screen name, screen name, is that the right thing? His his uh, username. His handle. His <laughs> handle uh, is Jazzmaster Samurai, which that already seems like a cool dude. He took the same audio, the same Peter Cullen audio, but he substituted all the animation in that Toonami opening with a newer animation that would, like, was equivalent or somehow worked in context. So whether he took it from the games, whatever various projects over the years where the original sort of story had been updated, obviously not the whole thing, but in parts, like in, in some of the games, there was, you know, cutscenes. So if, if a cutscene was equivalent to something that was in the original opening or it worked, he put it in. So that's new. It just came out about a month ago. So that's pretty cool. When someone asked me, oh, should I watch Gundam? I send them that. But it's never been uploaded in HD. You of all people, I don't think you can stand to watch standard definition anymore. It's a bit difficult. <laughs> it makes everything look fuzzy, doesn't it? It does, yes, yes. And so if you're trying to convince someone to watch a show and all you have to show them is this fuzzy thing, it doesn't work well. So No, it doesn't. But man, at the same time, I had to say I forgive a lot of people for maybe skipping over the original series right just because of how dated it looks sure it kind of has a charming simplicity to it but at the same time it it does have a very dated feel to it right yeah i think you kind of get used to it about halfway into the series but it's still every now and then there's an episode that just has really wonky proportions somewhere in the episode and it really makes you notice and be like oh wow like that's weird but uh i wish more people would watch it but i understand why they wouldn't it's tied to its time, and by that I mean just the look of the electronics they use, their uniforms, and the, how the vehicles are kind of designed. They're, a lot of the Xeon stuff especially, it's very playset. It's very like G.I. Joe playset, you know, like not really <laughs> too grounded in reality. But if they made a yeah. toy of that, you'd be like, wow, yeah, this is great for the action figures to kind of run around and... I completely forgot how like white base had turrets to like kind of pop out and like the person's exposed on the turret. I was like, wow, <laughs> <laughs> this was completely engineered out after white base. Right. There's a lot of oddities. I think those are just things that you kind of have to forgive, right? In in the first outing for like a big franchise that spawns a bunch of things because they're still trying to figure things out, right? When they made this, they didn't know that it was going to be going for 40 years. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you're just going to see some weird things. One of my favorites, Isaac, is is the Gundam Hammer. You know, we, we never really see that <laughs> again outside of this show. But hey, it doesn't need ammo. That's true. And hey, it worked like the one time he used it. <laughs> so, you, you know, something interesting I noticed. The uniforms, the Federation mm-hmm. uniforms, they're sort of a gender policy, right? Like <laughs> if you're a boy, you're in blue. If you're a woman, you're in pink. But that kind of falls away, I guess, as you move up because Matilda and Bright were both in, like, I guess, high-level officer khaki. Yeah, that's right. I, I wasn't clear if it was because, for example, Mirai and Frau, they're part of the Federation, but they, they really weren't part by choice. Now, Sela also wears pink, 
and she seems like she's there by choice but and maybe it's more just from a character design perspective like they they need people to have different colors yeah that's true but anyways <laughs> brian why don't you hold our hand and run us down the road of uh the episodes at least in this first half of mobile suit gundam 0079 i'll read the synopsis first from the gundam the official guide in the original mobile suit gundam story set centuries in the future Rebel space colonies are waging a cataclysmic war of independence against the Earth Federation. After months of fighting, both sides have become confused and exhausted, and a motley crew of civilian refugees find themselves the accidental custodians of the Federation's newest weapons. The original Mobile Suit Gundam series is remarkable for its complex characterizations, its gripping plot, and its gritty depiction of futuristic warfare. And so Isaac, the first 21 episodes of the first half of this show, at a high level, I don't think we should do a detailed analysis just because everyone knows this story, but it's basically going to take us from the start of the show, which occurs at side seven, which at the time of the show only has one colony. That's Green Noah One, uh, where our heroes find the Gundam, and they then escape from side seven as they're pursued by Shar, the main antagonist, I'll call him, or one of the antagonists. They escape to Luna Two, which is an asteroid that was dragged into lunar orbit and now serves as a Federation military base. After some skirmishes at Luna 2, it doesn't go too well there, Isaac. They then uh, re-enter Earth's atmosphere, sort of at the top of Africa, and then they they journey across the Atlantic Ocean into North America, where they then fight the first of the Zabi family, Garma Zabi. They fight him all across North America, and they end their battle with Garma, apparently in Seattle. And at this point, Amaro, our main character, is a bit mentally drained. They then battle our next main antagonist, Rambaral, through Asia. And at that, after that's over, the ship is now pretty damaged, Isaac. White Base has taken a beating, and they then move on to face the fourth antagonist, Makuve, in Europe. Uh, and they battle him into Odessa, which is unfortunately in the news lately. Um, <laughs> well, it's not funny, but you know, yeah, yeah. right? Who knew there'd be another war in Odessa between fascists and uh, elements of protecting democracy. <laughs> right. And at this point, Isaac, at the end of our 21st episode, Makuve has succeeded where Shar, Garma, Rambaral all failed and the white base has been grounded. And I set out to find a map of the white base. And so there was a post on Reddit about two years ago and there was a, a thread on uh, another forum called Mecha Talk from maybe 15 years ago talk about this path and sunrise actually does have official maps of the white base going on earth and their space path so it's pretty cool if you search on reddit there's a thread two years ago by someone named night is not over i believe he's one of the mods on the gundam uh, subreddit and he has links to paths which are pretty neat i i wish they would include these either with the dvds or if this show was made today isaac i think they would show these at the beginning of every episode kind of show where the white base is Wow, they really went on like a world tour. <laughs> yeah, they really did. And it kind of makes more sense if you look at the maps. They re-enter Earth kind of at the top of Africa, and then they basically circumnavigate the globe. And then even more interesting than that is kind of their space path, which I think is, is really helpful for the back half, Isaac. I bet, yeah. that's Although it's visually more confusing. <laughs> but um... <laughs> It is a little roundabout. But yeah. <laughs> have you ever seen these maps before? I think it's pretty cool. I, I would have liked these the first time I saw the show. No, in fact, when they redo the show, I think it'd be nice to, I don't know, we see like more of the map in the background, you know, on some screen or something to just orient the audience. Like on the title card, this could be in the background and they could update the map every few episodes or something. I think it'd be helpful, um, frankly, for, for a viewer. Definitely, man. And let me just say that like 
watching this show again after all these years it was very much like looking at old photos or or putting on like an old sweater or something like that <laughs> you know it was very it was very warm i knew what i was going to get into and at the same time i felt like i was watching something to an extent like made in the 60s before yeah. we were born brian um oh, yeah. of course but um, it was an experience going back and seeing it again. I, I, my brain, I guess through the lore that we've absorbed over time, had filled in so much stuff. And it, at times it felt like the pace was moving very quickly. And, mm. and, and I wanted to kind of yell at the TV like, wait, you're, you're not explaining any of this. <laughs> like, what do, you, what do you mean? They just t- had a conversation and left. You know, or really yeah. that was it for Ron Burrell? I remember him having like 10 episodes. What happened? <laughs> Things like that. You know, I thought Kai was more of a punk. He, he seems pretty reasonable this time around. Uh, oh, really? I think he's like a total ass, man. I'm giving him maybe more leeway because I don't know. Maybe I'm older now. He's like a, t- a teenager. <laughs> or so I'm like, well, what, come on, they're kids. What what can we expect? But uh, yeah, but yeah, reused death hitting me harder. I was like, man, the, the weight of hit. Uh, I, I don't remember um, Isolina. I forgot about that. Mm, yeah, boy, say what you will about Zeon women, but they're right or die, aren't they? If you if you <laughs> kill their lover, they're they'll kill themselves to get at you. <laughs> That's one of my main critiques of the first half is that the Garma and Rambaral plots with where the the lovers go out for revenge is a little samey because it, it happens like right after each other, and it's kind of like oh, I just saw this. Yeah, one one was clearly more competent than the other. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely no no question even garma though i remember him being in the series more it felt like three episodes of garma and then he dies well know? so I, I think that's because of the way we consume content now yeah remember like we you used to watch one episode a day now you probably got through these 21 episodes in three four sittings so in the old days your mind had more time to fill in that gap and like kind of stew on it and now you just press next and you're on to the next episode that's true and so much time has passed since um 1979 when the series first aired that our brain has knows automatically to fill in gaps when we see characters and stuff like that so right we know we know a ton of stuff garma has done we've seen garma a lot more than this series so to see him come in and out so quick as well as other characters it's a bit um I wouldn't say disappointing, but it's a, it's a bit shocking how little they started out with and then grew with, into with Gundam lore as it, as it continued. So you bring up something that was on my list, which is that this show moves very fast. There's always pressure on the white base, which is our, our main ship. That's our, our hero's ship that we are, we are on, essentially, for the, the duration of this show. There's never a dull moment here, Isaac. They're always getting attacked. They always have to move. They always have to go somewhere. There's both external pressure from Xeon... There's internal pressure, which is often not the case in other shows, right? Um, but here you have the real threat of Zeon, but then you've also got all these civilians on board, as well as maybe some people on, on the ship who don't agree with where the ship is headed or what the ship is doing. And that's it's either uh, Amuro at times or even Kai and Hayato. They left that one time, too. <laughs> or the rambunctious group of elderly people <laughs> that, for whatever yes. reason, think they could just run out into a war zone. <laughs> Yes, yes. The the elders are, are perhaps the biggest internal tension. <laughs> I can't believe one of them managed to kind of like run for it. <laughs> and he runs into Shar and Shar kills him. <laughs> oh, no, I don't even think it was one. I think it was like three of them, man. Like they made it out. And then you're right. Immediately Shar just gunned him down. I was like, holy crap. <laughs> Why did Shar do it, though? I mean, <laughs> well, I don't they're think clearly not Federation troops. <laughs> 
Yeah, but it it was in the middle of a sandstorm. I don't think he knows that they're oh. that they're civilians. He just sees them coming out of White Base, and you know what? I mean, fair game. They're gonna get it, right? <laughs> He's like, oh god, they spotted me. They're gonna storm me. I'm gonna shoot them while I can. <laughs> but you're right. You know, I think it was less than ten seconds after Frau said, "Please don't go," before they were dead. Yeah, man. Oh, those old people are so annoying. She did the little sit-in protest sitting at the yeah. bridge. It was like, <sighs> <laughs> let me ask you this, Isaac. You know, I thought that they were annoying and unreasonable when I was first watching the show back in, in 2000 or whatever. Now that you're older, do you sympathize any more with the elders or do you still feel that they are completely unjustified? I think it's unwise to leave mid-battle, but otherwise, if things were, you know, kind of peaceful, we're taking our breath, I can kind of understand them wanting to get off. Yep. The Xeon's not going to chase after them, I assume. And if they right. could find a nearby town, I think things would be all right, you know? So yeah. I'm more understanding now about what a roadblock they were. And they're old, so, you know, they don't got a bunch of time. Yeah, they don't care. But to your point about the show moving fast, I think this is just, that's just how Tamino rolls, you know? If you think about the other stuff that we reviewed on this podcast that he did, Charge Counterattack, F91, oftentimes, to me, it feels like you're just kind of along for the ride. You're just watching the characters talk, and he expects you to figure it out. And this series is not quite as forward on that as Charge Counterattack or F91 because he obviously has a lot more room. I still get that sense here. Like sometimes you just see a quick conversation. They're they're always doing something. They're always going forward, and they're not just talking heads. I guess I can see why some people would dislike that, but I don't mind it. I I think it's fine. Yeah, for something that's less than like 50 episodes, it kind of makes sense why it moves at um. Not a breakneck pace, but definitely a uh, faster step. (laughs) (laughs) And you do have to really pick things up when you're hearing like the zombies talk. You're like, oh, okay, clearly this is happening. Or, or, oh, okay, something happened off screen and, you know, they're clearly referencing it. And you you pick up more stuff like that. And then with the lore that we've just absorbed like a sponge over time, you know, we can infer things also. But not to sidetrack us too much, but there are some differences between the characters as we know them now and then the characters on this original airing, Dozel's almost night and day. Like in origin, our Dozel's not bumbling, but uh, very loud and um, abrasive. Here he's got a much more uh, reasonable voice, you know? Mm, yeah. I was a little bit taken aback by Dozel's voice. I don't remember him sounding that way, but it's obviously been a very long time since I watched the show. I agree. He's definitely a lot less bumbling than he was in in Origin. You know, this this does take place a little while after Origin. Not not a whole lot of time, but several months of war, I guess. So that that could have changed him, perhaps. What did you think about the kids this time around? Did you feel like? Well, I think they could. The show could have been done without them, but um, they were less of a nuisance than I thought. <laughs> <laughs> this time around yeah that's a good question now the first time i i watched a show i did not did not have children now i have two children <laughs> so i have a much different perspective and uh i didn't mind them the first time i definitely you know i think i shared that opinion the first time of just they're not necessary uh this time though i think that they're a good i don't want to say tool but they're a good storytelling tool to show why this war is is so bad but there's that one quote that kika says as they're leaving after the Ram, I think it's after the Rambaral fight. As White Base is flying away, they've they've buried all of their dead crew, and Kiko looks out the window and she says, "We're not going to leave their bodies behind, are we?" Because she doesn't understand what just happened. Right. And I I just thought that was heartbreaking. Yeah, it's 
having the kids on board this time around, I noticed different things, even with the Xeon officers. If you remember, there's a scene where um, a soldier in a Ramba squad is, he's about to lay a a bomb (laughs) onto the bridge, onto the glass of the bridge. And the little girl like runs up to it and like, is kind of like bad mouthing him, but he kind of goes out of his way not to like arm the charge yet. You know, he's like, Hey, you gotta get out of here, kid. (laughs) Yeah. I think even asked like, why are there kids on this ship? Yeah. (laughs) Is this a Federation tactic? They think we won't attack if there's children on board. (laughs) Even Rambo Rawl, right? He runs into Frau. And I mean, she's not a kid kid, but she's still a a pretty young teenager. And he like slaps the gun out of her hand. (laughs) Yeah. Basically, what are you doing, Missy? Yeah. Go hide, you know, until the shooting stops. If I see you with a gun again, I'll probably kill you. (laughs) (laughs) And he's given her, I think, multiple chances at this point to survive. Like he's willingly not killing her. Yeah, and then there was an earlier scene, I think, with one of the pilots of a lagoon. He had an escort, uh, or no, he went back to double check if right. this woman and her, I think her son or her daughter, her son. Yes, Coley. Yeah, he, he wanted to make sure they were okay because they set off on foot to some town they think they were going to. So yep. very much from the, the first series itself, they, they're showing that, yeah, Zeon's as an ideology and in a group, it's it's pretty evil, but... Even within such a an, an evil organization and, and nation, there's um there's still some human good people, you know, on both sides. That's actually my one of the next points on my list. But before we get there, my last comment on the show moving fast and just the the general characterization is that when I was writing notes for this show, I felt like I had way more to say about all of these characters than almost every other series that we've watched. The closest is probably Iron Blooded Orphans. So I don't know. Hats off to Tamino, I guess, because he he just writes good characters. There's so much to say about all the characters in this show, whereas some other shows, I feel like some characters are just kind of there, and I can't even remember their names by the end. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Some characters, I wish I knew their names, right? Because we see some more of the internal, maybe it's the engineering team, um, in the yep. white base. There's like blonde guy with curly hair. There's guy that has like big head and gray hair. <laughs> <laughs> You know, these nameless mooks that get pretty emotional, like when uh, Ryu dies, you know, one of them breaks down crying, and at other times, Amuro ran off, and then one of them's like, yeah, he's probably a Zeon spy. (laughs) It's like, wow. (laughs) Just really threw him under the bus there. Yeah, it's like at the drop of a hat, the the engineering team, (laughs) you know those science types, they'll be very blunt. (laughs) To your point about, like, the brutality, I guess, this show really pulls no punches, Isaac. The, the level of casualty here is enormous. Yeah. Episode one, we watch the tragic murder of Fraubo's mom. Oh, man. Her whole family. Yeah. Just like blown away. 50 people on like a road running for their lives. They take a, mm-hmm. a couple of shells from a Zazaku, I assume. Yeah. Yeah. And then Fraubo's mom's gone and... Boy, she never really had any time to mourn. She just kind of has to run, and then we never really hear anything else about it again. Yeah, Amaro had to slap her to, uh, yeah. you know, get her to, to leave, which that's a, that's a whole other item on my list is the level of slapping in this show. But um, Amaro slapping someone else <laughs> is, is the ultimate foreshadowing. <laughs> Little did he know Bright would give him a, a slap only days later that's, that's so impactful it immediately left a bruise. He did not know that he would cross paths with one Bright Noah at that time. And who was there to catch him from that slap? Fraubo. <laughs> Fraubo. Yeah, I mean, just there's so many examples, Isaac, of just the sheer brutality of the show. You know, on side seven, Amuro, he's talking to those two officers about his dad, and then he looks away, and they're blown away a few seconds later. 
they do a great job of showing in Amuro's face. They're like, these are the first people that Amuro's ever see die. How about this? Did you notice this in the uncut version? I assume they didn't put this on Toonami, but Captain Paolo, he takes that shrapnel to the chest. Uh, I don't think they showed the shrapnel in the chest in the Toonami version, but he keeps giving orders with the shrapnel in his chest. What a beast. Yeah, that, like... Oh. It was like not even just the chest, like the stomach and yeah, all over. Man, he he took it bad. I see why he died. But um, <laughs> not to segue us away, but do you remember it having so much combat that was focused on strikes? And by that I mean compared to 0083 and anything else, there's way more scenes of mobile suits trying to punch each other, kick each other. <laughs> You know, things like yep. that. I like I was I was watching this and I was like, wow, as the Universal Century went on, that kind of went out the window and everyone just focused on firearms at each other. Thinking back, I definitely remember White Base having a lot of problems with ammo and supplies. I definitely remember there being a lot of hand-to-hand combat. I at least feel like they justified a lot of it with I'm out of ammo. We don't have many reserve ammo packs or, or whatever because they only really have whatever they picked up from side seven i mean they've been resupplied i think once at, by this point by matilda maybe whatever they got from luna too they don't have a whole lot and they're kind of just out there on their own speaking of not have a lot i don't remember that scene where <laughs> the ship chef <laughs> the white oh, basin yes. chef uh-huh. he rolls up and well those some type of like buns like asian buns or were those meant to be hamburgers that he was like handing out they were like really oh, dark colored. I don't know. I, I probably took them as, as hamburgers, but I don't, I don't okay. remember. Anyways, it seems so out of left field. He was like, you know, we're running out of salt. And I was like, <laughs> who cares? <laughs> the salt episode gets a lot of flack from a yeah. lot of people. It's like, well. I never minded the salt episode, but. <laughs> I was kind of impressed, though, because the implication was, well, the white base is capable of taking salt water and simply separating the salt from the water. Yeah. So they could just get salt that way. And I thought, wow, that's. This ship really was meant to be um, something else, you know, definitely autonomous in its own regard. Yeah, an autonomous attack vehicle, for sure. On the chef, before we get back to the brutality, did you notice that he that he wore his chef hat no matter where he was in, in the ship? <laughs> like, he went to the bridge to, to announce the salt problem, but he still wore his chef hat. Like, that's dedication to your craft right there. I think that's pretty great. I mean, could you blame him, though? There's a bunch of civilians running around. Some of them were drafted and are actually part of, like, the, the ship's crew now. There's, there's children on board. He probably <laughs> went to, like, a pretty good culinary school, kept the hat, you know, and yep. he's like, you know what? I don't have to wear my normal military hat. I'm just, I'm taking orders from like a 19 year old. I might as well just wear my chef hat. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of um, going to the bridge, after the white base, every Pegasus type ship does not have a bridge as massive or cavernous <laughs> as the white base's bridge, which is huge, right, Brian? <laughs> you could. <laughs> If the walls were laid down, you could play basketball on them. <laughs> it is quite a large bridge. Yeah, I, I definitely think that, particularly in this first series, they really took the Trojan horse design literally. It was not quite as stylized as the rest of the Pegasus class ships that we see. No, you get to like the, the Rock Hyloom or, or the Albion or whatever, yeah. and the bridges are much more reasonably laid out and sized. Yeah. But man, the White Braces bridge, it's got those two massive sort of circular screens within large uh, squares kind of behind and to the sides. And 
oh my god you could like do they do movie night you think <laughs> <laughs> maybe like, during peacetime yeah they, yeah, they do movie nights like, on the bridge yeah everybody get to the bridge we're gonna watch a movie <laughs> because man these things are massive they're like building size walls (laughs) i would say that every pegasus class we see after this gets a lot flatter right like i feel like the white base is very tall which is bad because you're a big target there's more surface area for you to hit but again that was before the franchise matured and they were like oh okay this is still going to go on so we need to world build a bit here that's a great way to put it. Yeah. They clearly stopped this design and said, you know what? We gave them too much room on the bridge. They don't generally look behind them a lot on the bridge. Yeah. So th- they got rid of that. You mentioned Coley, the the son, the the kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was another just brutal moment when the Zeons, they, they mentioned, oh yeah, the mom, she wants to raise <laughs> Coley at St. Agnes. And they go, oh, isn't that just some bomb crater now? And I was like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah, she's like sitting on just like dust. And they're like, you know, you should probably head to that other town. You know, this, this town got wiped out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Was her husband at that town or did she say that's the way he was raised? I'm pretty sure her husband died somewhere. Okay. And she just wanted to go back and, and raise him there. Would you watch a Coley side story? Like, you know, he grew up with a vendetta against <laughs> Zeon. How old is he? Four? Is he going to remember? <laughs> it obviously would have to be a later conflict, but uh, you know, there's there's a potential. There's a make a side story about any everything here, Isaac, so. I'd love it. I'd, I'd want that to be almost like an anthology type thing where all these little characters we met along the way Federation Zeon civilian like we go back and see like where their lives led, you know, some of them yeah. maybe joined up later. Some of them maybe joined Aug later on or some, maybe some of them went full Titans or Neo Zeon. We don't know. That'd be cool. Speaking of side stories, uh, keeping with the brutality theme here, you already mentioned Char mowing down the elder civilians, which was really brutal, somewhat hilarious in the fact that they died so quickly after leaving the ship again, but <laughs> into the Garma plot a little bit. So that was really brutal when Garma just gave up and tried to ram the white base with the gal, but it disintegrated before it got there. And then right after, Isolina, she goes on her little vendetta, and she falls and hits her head to die. Very Gwen Stacy-like. <laughs> Why did she not fire, Isaac? Was it just, was the moment too much for her? Because if you remember, she was aiming at Amuro, and she could have shot him, but she didn't. And instead, she just kind of fell off. As much grief as she was in and emotions were high, at the end, I'm not sure she was ready to take a life with the pull of a trigger. You know, it's one thing with a ship already moving forward and you really just kind of need to steer it. Almost an abstract way to attack your enemy compared to looking down the, the sights of a gun, pulling the trigger yourself. She's a brave young woman for doing all that, I think. You know, no one would say she's not brave. Right. It's it's unfortunate she was so heartbroken she made that choice. But yeah, I I think this is a case of she just survived a crash. She was stumbling out there, never fired a gun, I assume. Uh, She sees the person she thinks killed her lover. She's in mourning. It's understandable to faint. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Yeah. And then after that, Amaro and everyone, they bury her and they wonder what her name was. That was hard-hitting as well. It overall, I think, kind of highlighted with Amaro saying that uh, this war is so massive. The the feelings, the emotions, the loss of a single person are, are meaningless in the grand scheme of things where more than half of the human population has been wiped out. 
So that Iselina thing, though, Isaac, Xeonic Scanlation just posted part of one of the new side stories that's, I think, either just came out or is about to come out called Mobile Suit Gundam uh, Rust Horizon. And the plot of it apparently revolves around a Xeon team sent to retrieve Iselina's corpse, uh, which apparently has been preserved somehow because she is carrying Garma's baby. What? Yes. That sounds... Yes. Now, I, clearly, that's not going to work out in the end, but it, unless it's some sort of alternate timeline type thing. But um, I, what's your thought on that? That is insane. <laughs> <laughs> I can see, like, the the armchair generals kind of giving this the approval, but, like, how did the actual officers going, you know, not kind of raise their hands and say, this is insane. What do you mean <laughs> we're West Green like the baby? It, it's been in the ground. What are you talking about? <laughs> The manga page, it has her in kind of like a tube. So she's obviously in better shape there. So I don't remember. Maybe in the compilation movies, maybe she's not buried. I haven't watched the compilation movies in a long time. But I just thought that was interesting, uh, given that we had just just watched this Iselina thing unfold. So That's nuts. And I'm curious. I'm very curious now. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. another thing I noticed about Iselina, like after Garma's death, they assign her this little officer guy, right? To kind of, yes, I guess, do her bidding. How did she get the authorization to get, like, a gal, you know? They just said, well, you know, she was his girlfriend. Whatever she wants, guys. She wants to do an attack, we'll do it. You know? <laughs> she wasn't part of the military. I felt like Zeon was pretty lax in requirements to fulfill requests. I feel like if it was just, did people like you, then you got it. Because remember, Shar ordered, or no, Rambaral ordered, whatever, three goofs or something, and he didn't get any of them. Because Makube was like, no, we're not going to give it to him. Screw him. Yeah. Okay. So I think it was all who you knew. That makes sense. Did you also notice when he's uh, escorting her to um, Garma's office? In Garma's office, there's a massive portrait of Garma. (laughs) I did not. uh, But now that you say that, I think I did, which is weird. (laughs) It's a very Garma thing to do. Yeah, just look at myself. You think he would have put one of Dagwin in there, right? Because we always see Dagwin in some massive picture yeah. where, wherever you go in Xeon. <laughs> <laughs> Staying on Garma, I guess. Sure. Did he get a raw deal here? Because, you know, before Char kills him, not directly, indirectly, but he does admit, like, Garma, you were a good friend to me. Did Garma deserve this? Or I go along with Char's statement. This is essentially just a result of Garma's last name. Otherwise... Right. He probably would have been one of Shar's allies, yeah. but um, it had to be done. It had to be another blow to the zombies. And Garma, not being a total idiot, he did pick up that something was wrong with him and Shar. Right? He was kind of giving Shar the the side eye and the squints when Shar was like, right. "Oh, you know, I thought you could handle it. You know, I didn't want to embarrass you, of <laughs> course. You know, well, with your, you know, with the, the attachment you sent out, we thought you were capable of, you know, blah blah right. blah blah." And Garma was like, oh, "Whatever. For the sake of our friendship, I guess I'll just dismiss it and say, sure. You know, just don't leave me hanging again next time." Yeah, he's he's a bit tragic in that way. Yeah, dare I say, the only innocent zombie. Right. Yeah, I think I think that's a fair statement. Obviously, he's participating in the war, so he's you know his hands are not clean. I I feel like he was the only one that had a wholesome agenda. I'll say, or like he really believed in in what he was doing. The, all the other ones had ulterior motives. Maybe not Dozel. I'm not sure, but yeah. Well, Dozel, I think he was involved in the colony drop, and yeah, that's true. So yeah. I, I assume his hands are as bloody as the the rest of his siblings and his father. Maybe well, maybe Garma was involved in the colony drop too, but. I don't know. Dharma is essentially the only member of the family that I'd be surprised if they were behind atrocities or anything like that or super weapons. He seems very yeah. non-super weapon, non-atrocity. 
more about um, the public face, the handsome face of the fascist empire they're trying to build. Right. Yeah, I agree. If this was redone today, Isaac, would Garma have a mobile suit? Or is that part of his charm, that he doesn't use mobile suits? And if he did have a mobile suit, what would he have? Because in this first half, we honestly didn't get that many different mobile suits. No, it would have to be a, a Garma custom Zaku, right? Yeah, or a goof, but we hadn't seen the goof at that point. So either a Zaku 2 or even a Zaku 1, I guess you could give him. What would a Garma Zaku 2 look like? Would it be like the Dozel one that has the elaborate markings? What color does he use, first of all? Like purple? No. Well, no, I'm going to go orange because he had a dop that was orange, remember? So I'd say he'd have an orange Zaku, which is a color kind of close to red. So that kind of signifies his uh, close friendship with Char. I, I think it would be cool to give it a little bit of that, uh, you know, zombie type flair that only their okay. mobile suits get. The little pattern designs on like the shoulders and stuff like that. Yeah. So I, I think that'd be very Garma. Maybe they could have him fight in it. Maybe it's somehow like docks to the lagoon or something like that. That'd be cool. But um, yeah, I wouldn't be opposed to it. It'd be kind of cool to see that happen. But at the same time, it also kind of rubs into his personality that he's not really a frontline kind of guy. Technically Garma's mobile suit is Shar's mobile suit. Shar's the one out there doing the actual fighting and following uh, the orders. Garma really shouldn't have been that close, but here we are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's fair. I like that concept that Shar is yeah. is Garma's weapon kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. If Garma stayed at that fancy dinner party, I think he'd still be alive. <laughs> I agree. Eventually, you know, the white base would leave his airspace and he he would have been fine. Yeah. I don't even think he would have necessarily needed to go to Jabrail for the attack, right? He No, he probably could have got off planet and Yeah, stay near the California base. When Odessa happens and Makuve runs, you know it's time to get to Zanzibar and leave too. Absolutely. The last brutality things I had on my list. Possibly the the most painful death, I think, in the first half, Isaac, was oh, when Sela and a random white base person, they blow Ramba Rao's guy named Kozun out of the airlock with a bazooka. <laughs> I mean, holy crap, Isaac. I was like, damn, that dude, he really got it. Was the soldier, the Federation soldier with her, is that guy like, was he a civilian drafted into service? I, or was he? I a- have no idea. I think he was just nameless Joe Schmo number four. Because he right? point blank fired that bazooka into yeah. like an eight by eight room. <laughs> Man. And like, you know, they had really built up Kozun at that point. I was like, oh, okay, Kozun, he's pretty cool. Rob Rao, all of his guys, you know, I like them. And then this dude just gets blown out. Oh, man, that was rough. As Kazoo was falling, I was like, okay, I think he can still power up his boosters. And then he yeah. kept falling and he kept falling. No, I, I, was don't, like, I don't think. Yeah, I was like, I think the concussion killed him. <laughs> pretty sure he was not alive at that point. Speaking of painful deaths, though, I mean, there's so many to go through, right? I thought you were going to go with something else, like, um, like the guy burning up on re-entry. No, so I was just going to say, so I think Kozun is the most just explosively painful one. That one's the most tragic because you can see it in Char's face that he is super upset that he cannot save his man. That was rough to watch. He says, you know, Crown, I'm sorry. I cannot retrieve you. Your, you know, your sacrifice will not be in vain. And poor Crown is just like, please, Captain Char, please, Captain. And then, oh, man, that's rough. One thing I noticed, though, is that, like, the heat-resistant film that the Gundam gets... Oh, yes. It, like, pulls out of a pouch like it's a parka, <laughs> <laughs> like it's yeah. a tarp, and it just, like, kind of loosely throws it on itself. 
if I remember correctly, in the compilation movies, they don't have the film. He just puts up the shield. Okay, that makes more sense. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. Uh, kind of jumping back to our, our discussion about uniforms. <laughs> Do you think McCuvey's uniform is custom or... Is that like a colonel of his rank supposed to have the sort of little, the little <laughs> pirate shirt, uh, a napkin? No, <laughs> I think that is totally custom. I mean, the dude doesn't have much oversight, right? Now that I think about it, no one in Xeon has that color. No one else wears khaki. Well, no one else uses a Gion either. Yeah, that's that's true. What do you think about his mobile armor? Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, the Odson. Adzum, yeah, Adzum. I don't remember Adzum. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's definitely dated. It's not a design that you would see today. It definitely strikes me as something that made sense for the time, though. I mean, remember UFOs, Isaac, were a huge deal in the '60s. That's true. It looks like a UFO War of the Worlds inspired design to me. In my notes, I wrote "Purple Death Onion." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it kind of does look like a purple. It's, death it's onion. a red onion. <laughs> <laughs> It served its purpose. You know, I think as a designer, as an animator, you're just trying to come up with some sort of big threat. And um, this was probably cool back in the day. So yeah. I don't mind it. It's definitely a product of its time, though. I think if, if someone is out to hate the designs or hate the animation on this show from the beginning, they're going to get to the odds um and, and not like it, probably. Yeah. And um, I forgot Kaecilia essentially went to Earth to watch a battle be lost. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, then she kind of just leaves, right? Yeah, I mean, also, like, her life was in mortal danger. I'm surprised <laughs> she, she I, well, I guess she felt really safe and didn't, just, well, they had a whole army there now that I think about it. I was about to say, I'm surprised she didn't show up with, like, 10 goofs or something, but um, <laughs> there was already a bunch of Zakus and uh, Magella tanks there, so I assume she felt safe. In their defense, too, why, why would one prototype Federation mobile suit dare attack our whole base? Right, yeah, so, it makes no sense, right? And and then yeah. with that happening, maybe you'd predict heavy casualties, but you wouldn't predict that you would lose your whole base. Man, they lost it in totality. That's <laughs> another thing I noticed. I don't remember there being this many DOPs and Magella tanks in combat. Like it's Proportionally, we're getting very few Zakus, actually, and Guffs. Yeah, yeah. I actually do remember that just because that was, I remember my, this is kind of dumb, but my brother, they remember they sold like the, the Gundam toys at the time. Yeah. And I just remember that that was like all you could find in the store because no one wanted to buy the DOP or the, <laughs> or the Lagoon. The supply reflected the series. <laughs> yes. Like that was what, you know, people left on the shelf. And so my brother ended up buying, like he had some DOPs. And a, and a lagoon so like we we had that and like you know he, he played with it and stuff and so i just i remember that being in the series a lot but i think that goes it furthers the mystique of the mobile suit right because there's not yeah. a million of them at least yet right there there is later on in the show but in, in the beginning here it's still fairly special when you see one. did that work out perfectly when you guys are playing because like did you have the gundam you would essentially be federation versus zeon <laughs> or d- uh, or did you not have the Gundam? <laughs> you also had like Lagoons and Dops. <laughs> they were all his. I didn't have any. I, I stuck it out for the models. Oh, wow. These were like the action figures, yeah. Okay, he had the actual standing army. <laughs> he had a lot of good ones, though. He actually had like, he had the gun parry, I remember. Watching this series from the beginning again and having seen so many other series of, of Gundams, were there times you felt like there's too many characters? There's too many supporting side characters that were repeatedly seen. There are definitely a lot of characters. There's there's more characters in this than pretty much every other series, with the exception of probably Zeta and maybe Iron-Blooded Orphans. Iron-Blooded Orphans had a lot of characters as well. 
I didn't mind it. At the same time, it's hard for me to answer that question objectively because I already know all the characters. Right. Right? I, I can't go back in time and answer that. But I, I could see why someone would get overwhelmed. Yeah. And I think a lot of that stems from the fact that the Gundam center stage, but because of the gun tank and the gun cannon being there, it essentially tripled the, the pilots that were kind of involved within the story. As opposed to after this, you focus on the Gundam and the pilot. That's about it. Everyone else is a supporting character. And I know they had to make toys and all that and sell them. There had to be different types of mobile suits because, you know, we need merchandise and all that. But looking back now, it for the original series, it's really on its own in that regard for having gun tank, gun cannon, gun dumb. Just such a huge amount of, of supporting characters. I think it's a Tamino thing. Yeah. Because we get that in Zeta, right? There's the Mark II, the Hyakushiki. We get that in Double Zeta. Um, we get it a little bit in Double Eighty Three. You got the fourth team, um, but they're definitely not as in focus yeah. as much, right? Lesser so, degree, definitely. Yeah, I think that's just a refinement of the formula over the years. That's true. They put everything in with the kitchen sink, and then after the series, they start uh, refining it. Okay. You know, a lot of risks were taken with this show, so you got to give them credit. Yeah, right? and compromises too. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Well, originally the gun was supposed to be, well, he envisioned it as all white, but yeah. a few kids would want that. <laughs> Yeah, I was just reading on on uh, Wiki before this that he was apparently very upset when they changed it to uh, you know re- the red, white, and blue and yellow. He he was not very happy. <laughs> he was not pleased. <laughs> I wonder how he feels now. Uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, he he just took part in the life size new Gundam dedication, so he's clearly still okay with Gundam. I mean, he's he's been working on the Reconquista movies, um, so he doesn't hate it. I don't know that it's his favorite thing anymore, but. He spent his whole life hearing about it, right? So I'm sure he's kind of over it to some extent. But True, true. I don't know. It's his creation. How do people feel about their creations 40 years later? Hmm. Tricky question, right? It probably varies by author. Did you feel different about any of the characters seen at this time around? Uh, I definitely felt like Kai was just a complete... <laughs> his English voice is perfect. He's a guy you love to hate. He has some great lines, though, Isaac. There's that one episode where he gets in the gun cannon and he goes, ah, another day here in the coffin. And then he shuts the door, (laughs) which I thought was perfect. I think he's pulling his weight, you know? (laughs) You think so? Yeah. Well, in this part of the show, he's still not a very good pilot. Like, he wastes so much ammo when he's in the gun cannon. And they don't even have that much ammo and he's just firing it and, you know, nothing. He does have that one great moment where he pushes that Zaku off the ledge. Oh, right. I thought that was hilarious. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah. Speaking of pushing the Zaku off the ledge, there's multiple times where it's definitely the Gundam, but it might also be the gun cannon. They're close enough to the Zakus where they're able to always grab the snout and then like throw the Zaku back while ripping the snout <laughs> off the face. The Gundam is powerful, Isaac. <laughs> yeah, apparently. And like that's the, the Zaku's like weak point. <laughs> yeah. It happens so often. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if Tamino is the one that likes the hand-to-hand combat because if you remember at the end of char's counterattack, he's also very physical yeah char and amuro are just beating the crap out of each other with kicks and punches maybe so, he does i mean i didn't mind it but i agree with you though that it's a little bit in contrast from later series other characters that i thought of mm-hmm. differently Ooh. were primarily the females oh i thought that actually the females in this show are pretty good for that time Mirai especially, she's a lot more resourceful than I remember. She steers the ship in weird situations. She t- turns the white base upside down against Rama Rall. Yeah. That was like a, a, a pretty cool beast move. She has no problem talking back to Bright. Her and Sela actually. I don't remember that. 
her, her and Sayla give Bright a lot of lip. They kind of keep him in check because I think they know that he's too young to be in the role that, that he's in. And Sayla as well, I, I thought that she was she's a lot more aggressive than I remember. She's very assertive at helping people, uh, which is really in line with her character in Origin, I thought. Remember in Origin when she defends the, the house, she gets the gun out and starts shooting them all? Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She has the audacity to steal the gun that one time, Isaac, to see if she can find Char, but she gets beat by Rama Rall instead, so it doesn't end well for her. But I also like that moment when she meets Char. Did you notice that Char is wearing his red and she's wearing her pink uniform? So I wonder if that was also a reason for putting Sayla in pink. It, w- it was a nice uh, tie-in. They're both wearing the same color. Yeah, maybe it was. And that's a good point about the female characters. You know, this show was done so long ago, it could be forgiven for making them a bit more stereotypical. Well, Frabo gets stereotyped a lot. She maybe I felt the most different about. When I originally watched the show, I felt Frau was really annoying. But she, she was a little annoying in the beginning just because she had a lot of lines where all she said was Amuro. It was too many Amuros. But she may be the best-hearted individual on the ship. She's always watching out for people. She's trying to get Amaro to keep living, basically. She says things like, if you can't take pride in protecting White Base, then you're not a real man. And she goes and volunteers to pilot the Gundam, even though she knows that it wouldn't go well. She goes out to find Amaro in the desert. She wants to go help Amaro take off the bombs. And she's really upset when no one else is helping Amaro take off the bombs off Gundam. Do you remember that? She, everyone is sitting there watching him do it out the window and she's like what are you people doing what is wrong with you you're all horrible people and Mirai tells her something like you know you'll never be able to handle them so she's the one that gets stereotyped <laughs> I think for the time like that's kind of what I was expecting the the treatment that she gets that's a good point yeah I, I saw Frau as being very uh, compassionate and kind you know the ship kind of needed a big sister oh she was kind of like the babysitter to an extent <laughs> Yeah. No, literally, she was. She was was babysitting the kids, right? But definitely Mirai. She took control of the ship when Bright was, you know, wounded or sick. She and Bright clearly linked up pretty quickly and said, all right, I'm the ship mom. You're the ship dad. This is how (laughs) it's going to work. (laughs) And Sayla's pretty much the ship big sister. So (laughs) between the three of us, I think we can run this. Something I noticed is that in the passing conversation between Bright and Matilda, I think Bright mentioned that, like, well, we haven't really gotten much help or received as much, you know, response as we should have. And Matilda mm-hmm. kind of lets it slip that that's been intentional. Yes, yes. Yeah. It was because they're not normal military, so their strategies are considered novel. And since it's working, they're going to let them go and continue their novel strategies, which is giving them more combat data, which they may not otherwise get. <laughs> that sounds half insane, though, right? <laughs> well, like, well, yeah. <laughs> if we give those civilians our, our test weapons, you know, we'll, <laughs> they're definitely going to do something we haven't, you know, done before. <laughs> so this is one of my other overall points here, Isaac, is that you're right. I think that does sound a little bit insane. It sounds very callous. But one thing I took away from this first half is that the Federation is not your friend, and they are a bunch of... Look at all the stuff we saw them do just in the first half of the show. Luna 2 refuses to take the civilians. The Luna 2 guy named Joaquin, he's a general for the white base crew. He's very suspicious. Uh, The Lieutenant Reed guy that they leave Luna 2 with, he's overall... While he's on the white base, he complains they're flying too low despite not understanding the strategy. He wants to abandon white base... 
Remember the drunk Federation soldiers in Amaro's house ransacking the place? Yeah. And then there were the, the other soldiers in the town that forced the woman to pick up a coin for the apples they ate. They didn't even pay her what they owed. They just gave her one coin. Are there anyone outside of the white base crew, which aren't even really Federation soldiers, Matilda and Captain Paolo, that are cool? Maybe General Rebel. I was about to say, at this point, we technically haven't seen General Rebel. He just gets referred to. Right. The captain was nice, but he's dead. <laughs> right, yeah. He, he took the shrapnel on his chest, and then and he's, he's gone. So, no. Even at this point in 0079, the Federation was a corrupt, inefficient, vague mirage of a democracy. Yeah, and I mean, even Revel, his his order that you brought up, you know, you're they're basically just data to the Federation. They're not real people at this point. Let's just see how long they can go and how long they can limp along, and then we'll use their data to make the gyms. So is this why it feels so gray? Because, you know, people like to say, oh, well, Gundam, there's no real good guy, there's no real bad guy. But then we always point out that, well, Zeon's a lot worse than the Federation because they were the one that dropped the colony, they were the one that gashed the colonies. So, yeah, the Federation didn't do that, but, man, they sure are just bad, Isaac, from, like, top to bottom. Is that why it feels so gray? Because the first half of this, I don't feel like Zeon was painted in a terrible light. Well... (laughs) In the intro, they are. <laughs> well, besides the colony drop, I agree. But, like, you know, there was the, the Lagoon pilot who would go check on the kid. There was the Xeon bomb squad. Turned out they respected Amuro for taking all this stuff. Like, I'm just saying the light that Xeon soldiers were cast in was more favorable than the light that the Federation soldiers were cast in. So, despite the gassing and the colonies, is that why people feel like it's such a gray series just because the federation acts like a bunch of jerks all the time yeah i'd assume that's definitely part of it especially if this is the, f- the only part you've seen so far you'd probably be kind of rubbing your head and going wow maybe zeon should win um <laughs> <laughs> so i think you're right isaac i think most federation soldiers go to the basque om school <laughs> and very few go to the uh, the bright no academy for gentlemanly officers yeah <laughs> that makes perfect sense man why is the federation like this to their own people <laughs> <laughs> i don't know is it just like a case of the, the army so demoralized they'll just ransack abandoned houses and not even pay for food because they feel like zeon's won like what is it i wish i had more of an explanation like some officer offhand would like walk past armor and say don't judge them too harshly you know they'll, they'll probably be dead in a few months with the way this war is going and then, right. you know, as the audience would be like, oh, wow, yeah, I guess that's true. You know, the, the Zakus look like they can kind of slap around anything they want except the Gundam. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I took it as like an abuse of power. Maybe there's a story out there that says why they're all so terrible. They weren't even able to defend the town that they were ransacking. <laughs> no, absolutely not. Yeah. So they failed. Man. Isaac, so there's one thing about this series that I want to call out as just great was the intro in episode one. I thought the beginning of episode one still holds up very well. First of all, the expository intro with the narrator still works well, especially when, you know, at the end when he goes and die. I think and I hope the movie should open in a similar way, our live action film. Absolutely. I'd even want a remake to be word for word the same, just with the obviously updated visuals. It's the perfect opening crawl, very Star Wars style, right? It says so much in so little of a time. Just those opening words, it is the year 0079, are so recognizable. It sets the stage that this is a different calendar. And then right after that, the Zaku's approach to the colony, Green Noah 1, 
uh, is great. They focus on the mono-eye quite a bit. And I think that's a little bit of world building. You're like, what is this? This is a mobile suit. Okay, I can understand it's using this as a camera. I get it. It's silent for almost a full minute or so as they open the airlock. They bump into the wrench thing, which shows you that you're in zero gravity. Which brings me to my next point, Isaac, that this show is great at showing, not telling, which I think is something we get in a lot of other series, which makes them feel a little more boring. Yeah, and it also really keeps us grounded in reality as much as it can for a show like this. It doesn't get too fantastical or anything like that. And I wonder if that was really different at the time. If at the time... Absolutely yeah, it was different. You, you'd see robots fighting giant monsters or, you know, uh, anime with like magic swords and stuff like that. So Gundam is a very moderately hard science approach to sci-fi. Yeah, I mean, it's not full-on hard science, but it's a lot closer than what was available at the time, you know, which was the super robot shows, which you mentioned. I mean, we could do a whole episode about that, which I'm sure other people have, have covered that. But yeah, I mean, normally robots would be fighting aliens and, you know, they'd be shouting their attack names like G Gundam. Like, that's what G Gundam is. It's a super robot take on Gundam, which is there's fun. That's fun. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. But that's not what this show was supposed to be. Going back to your show um, instead of tell, you really get that in, like you said, the visuals. I don't know anybody who would probably look at the Monowai and say, oh, these are the heroes. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> as opposed to the brightly colored, you know, Gundam and gun tank and gun cannon. Right. Even going beyond that, the Xeon, but they're clearly Axis inspired look to their yes. uniforms and the Federation having much more Western style uniforms. So you could pretty easily make the assumption that they're a vague type of democracy, at least. Right. Yeah, I have a bunch of highlights of Show, Don't Tell, which I think is sorely missing in a lot of modern anime. Do it, Brian. Let's see this list. When Shar and Sela first meet, there's a moment where they both wonder, and it gives us just a hint of what's to come, but it doesn't tell you the whole backstory, which is good because it keeps you guessing, like, oh, something just happened there. I need to keep that in my mind. When Garma suggests that Shar is there to impress Kaecilia, he laughs almost hysterically, Shar does. And at the time, you don't really know why. But as you learn more throughout the show, his laugh at Garma makes very much more sense. It doesn't tell you why, because it's already told you why by having him laugh. The suggestion to Shar is so absurd. <laughs> and, you know, it will obviously end with one of those characters losing their head, but... Did you notice, Isaac, that they never fully explain the Minovsky particles? They just explain what the effects of the Minovsky particles are. They just always make offhand comments like, the density is too high, therefore we cannot use the radar, or our communications are not reaching them. They just state what the impact is having on the battle, rather than stopping the episode and doing a full five-minute teardown of what the Minovsky particle is. That's a good point. Much more effective. Yeah, that's a great point. Like, oh, the Trojan horse is in a canyon because it'll magnify the Manovsky particle uh, effects. Right. And it's like, ah, okay. So we know yes. this is something that you, you can you can bounce off objects. You can bounce off terrain. And how about the scene where Garma, the news of his death reaches Degwin, one of your favorite characters. <laughs> he drops his cane and says nothing. There are no words. It's a great shot. It's a great way to introduce Dagwin. It's really one of the first times we've seen him. And the colors change. And you can just see that this dude is now overtaken with grief. And even on the balcony when he's talking to his kids, like his eyes are closed the whole time. <laughs> yeah, because he doesn't care anymore. Yeah. I have a question about that later uh -oh. on. Uh, around that same time, when they're talking about what to do with Char, Kaecilia inquires about Char. 
after they've already decided to kind of do away with him or reassign him, which gives us a sense that there's tension between her and Garen, but doesn't outright say that there's tension between her and Garen. Kai does a little bit of world building. He meant he's, he has an offhand comment about, oh, just having a place on Earth makes you elite, which made me wonder how far away are we from that, Isaac? I mean, housing prices are through the roof now. I'm not sure who's going to be able to buy a house pretty soon. Only the Earthborn elite. Yeah, exactly. So we're we're coming into the universal century, folks. But I think the best example, Isaac, was when Rambo Rawl was on the ship, and he runs into Sayla, and he he says, "Oh, your highness." That's the perfect reveal. He got it out in three words. We we didn't get a full episode of backstory, and then he says like a, a short and effective explanation. I'm Rambo Rawl, son of Jim Rawl. He served under your father, Zeon Zoom Daikun. That's it. That's all we needed to know. And then we get a shot of him holding her up as a little girl. Like, if Seed did this, Isaac, we'd get a half an episode of flashbacks and heavy dialogue. And and you don't need that. No, no. It's a great way to sort of, uh, what's the phrase? Leaving some breadcrumbs for us, right? We keep following yeah. it throughout the episodes. We know there was royalty at some point. We know the, the zombies are current royalty. And we're going to see things unfold as the plot continues. Uh, speaking of Seed Isaac, as I watched this, <laughs> I realized I was like, man, Seed really ripped this whole thing right off. I mean, <laughs> you don't say, Brian. Well, I mean, we knew that, but it becomes very apparent when you watch the two somewhat close together. Would you say Zaft is maybe too similar to Zeon or the other way around? <laughs> it's not so much that the factions are the same. It's just that they kept the same story beats almost one for one, right? I mean, the they start in the colony, Zaft infiltrates the colony. One Gundam gets away. Maybe, okay, Zaf steals some Gundams. That's a little different, but <laughs> either way. They go to their equivalent of Luna 2, which is an asteroid. They're met with resistance from their own people at the asteroid. They escape. They go down to Earth in a battle that goes not well during re-entry. Meet their Rambaral in Andrew Waltfeld. It's just very similar. Even Makuve blowing up all his own people at his base is the same thing that the Seed Federation did. Yeah, very true. Although one improvement, maybe the only improvement, that Seed did was they focused on one mobile suit. Oh, the Strike, yeah. Yeah, as opposed to having three in the in the cargo bay. But other than that, Seed was very much a, a case of repeating what worked, repeating the one-year war, just updating it for the Seed format. How about the slapping, Isaac? Was the level of slapping in this show surprising to you? There was more slapping than I remembered. <laughs> I wrote them down. Amuro slaps Frau to snap her out of her parents' death and get her moving. Of course. Sayla slaps Kai for hiding instead of helping people evacuate inside Seven. Bright slaps Amuro the first time when he wants a break, and he says they're done catering to your tantrums. And that's, I think, what you were talking about when Amuro's like, oh man, my dad didn't even hit me. And then uh, Bright's like, I'm so disappointed in you. I don't want to see your face. I hoped you could surpass Shar, the Red Comet, which is like a backdoor compliment, right? Right. You know, Isolina gets slapped by her dad, telling her she can't marry Garma. Ryu slaps Amuro when he's tired and about to go into battle. Ryu punches Amuro when he's still mouthing off after he's being put in the brig. And then Ryu punches both Kai and Hayato and whoever else left with them. There's just, there's a lot of hand-to-hand violence here, Isaac. Did all these people go to the Bright school of, of parenting? And, and do you think Bright's father beat the crap out of him? 
Apparently, they all went to the same school, but no, I don't think Bright's dad beat the crap out of him. I think, <laughs> I think Bright just being a teenager let the emotions get, get let emotions get the better of him. Although he's not much older than Amaro, yeah. but now that you listed it out, there's a lot of slaps. There's a lot of striking, <laughs> almost too much. <laughs> We're only halfway through the show, folks. There's going to be more in the back half. In their defense, they're going through the worst war in human history, so it's it's only natural, right? <laughs> Yeah, that's emotions fair. are high all the time. Were there any moments that made you laugh, Isaac? Hmm. Yeah, I think when Char's laughing because it's it's such a comically evil laugh. Oh yes, yes. <laughs> they they almost hammed it up too much. I think. Yeah. It it should have been toned down. <laughs> How about you? The funniest part I think was when they were in the refugee camp with his mom. And the Zeon soldier asks a re- uh, an old person a-, a question about the noise that happened. I think it was Amro's cell phone. And the person just goes, I don't know. I'm 89 years old. <laughs> That's a great answer. What always kind of shocked me about that scene, too, was that, like, Amro gets off the shot on that soldier, right? And the other Zeon soldier just books it. <laughs> yeah. Did not go back for his friend <laughs> he whatsoever. Didn't, he didn't even fire back. You know, he just <laughs> assumed maybe he was surrounded by armed enemies and got the heck out of there. <laughs> You're right. Maybe he just assumed everyone else in there was, was Federation. No, no, I don't buy that at all. He needs to be court-martialed. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't even bother to check on his friend. He just, you know, his friend was obviously not in good shape, but he could at least try to save him, I guess. I don't know. His friend lived, right? I think uh, Amaro's mom said, oh, he's just badly wounded, but he'll make it. It looked like he died, though. Uh, yeah, if you hadn't told me that, I, I would have told you he died. Did you find the kids funny? <laughs> I, I found them entertaining. and Not, you know, laugh out loud funny, but they did some funny things, like when they were trying to help. <laughs> I think there was a scene where they're like, they came to the bridge and they like, hey, they brought like a vacuum. <laughs> yep yep and and i think bright like kind of chews them out he's like what are you doing you know we're in the middle of of combat or we're, we're sweeping for the enemy or something like that they defended themselves like we're trying to help everybody's doing something we, we want to help too and bright kind of has to apologize <laughs> and say go ahead <laughs> yeah yeah he has to stop himself right good for him Isaac, i think zeon should use the commando strategy a lot more often it was really effective in this first half which did you find more effective, the attempt to take the white base commando style or the attempt to bomb the Gundam commando style? Both were great and really worked out almost. I mean, the Amro getting the bombs off the Gundam was a bit of a fluke. You know, if, if they did that 10 times, I'm pretty sure it would work 7 out of the 10 times. Ramba's attack on the white base worked wonders as well. That Ramba episode was one of my favorites. Did you have any favorite episodes? Mine was the first one, just because the intro I thought was good. It was a great overall first episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, Garma's Fate, that was episode 10, when they finally killed Garma. Coming Home, I thought the episode where Amuro meets his mom was a, was a great episode. That kind of encapsulates Amuro as a character, at least in the beginning. And then the, uh, episode 18, Ramba Rao's Attack, which that was a great fight. I mean, that was Ryu died. That was big. Yeah, I liked Ramba Rawls' episodes. I forgot what a what a quality person he was, even outside of the battlefield, you know? Yeah, he was a great character. Yeah. I liked him. I, I would have liked, a, I don't know, an alternate, you know, decision tree Gundam series or something. And, yeah. And we got to see more of him. But um, uh, going back to the commando thing, why on God's green earth did these young commandos not, like, shoot at Amuro as he was taking off the bombs? You know, they they essentially could just needed to distract him until the bombs went off. Yeah, that's fair. I think maybe they didn't, be, because you're right. If they had done that, then they would have 
secure the objective. Although I think if they had done that, then they would have been vaporized by the mega particle cannon. <laughs> yeah, because well, then they would know, be like, oh, that's where the enemy is. Let's just fire over there because they just killed Amuro. What about like the little scooter stuff? Couldn't they like fly around using those? At the same time, though, I think the white base is a bit faster. Yeah. Okay. They, they, you know, they could launch the core fighter. There, there would be retribution there. But I agree. They, if they had just fired a little bit, even one or two of them, they, they probably could have secured the objective. Yeah. It also looked like they were having almost a, a sporting approach to combat. Because, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because, like, they're just watching and kind of observing him take off the bombs and, like, oh, wow, he's really going to do it. <laughs> And then afterwards, they ran over in their paper-thin disguise, right, to say, oh, you you guys are Federation? (laughs) (laughs) What are you doing over here? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, good luck with the war. (laughs) They were pretty observant, though. They figured out who, um, or no, it was Bright that was the one who was observant. After they drove away, he was like, well, that was clearly the Zeon soldiers that planted the bombs. You'd think he would have shot at them or something. Well, I don't know. Maybe he didn't want to court any more conflict. I'm not sure. Mm, I don't know. I always say shoot and then ask questions later. <laughs> That's the Isaac approach. I think the designs, just because of the animation, they show their age, but that's not necessarily bad. It's just overall you have to get used to them being so much more rounded, so much more cartoony, I'd almost say. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just it's just older, right? It's just a different style. Again, I don't think it's something that you should hold against the show. That's just how things were back then. Like you said, people were used to the robots fighting aliens not a geopolitical war so i think they were trying to bridge that gap at least on the on the sunrise side as far as the designs we get, did get there weren't that many mobile suits in this first half isaac there was the gundam the gun tank the gun cannon zaku one zaku two and then the goof that's not a lot by today's standards no no and even the proportions were kind of unusual on the suits themselves the heads are kind of too big compared to the finalized versions we see in almost all Gundam made since like the 80s, the late 80s, right? Proportions have gotten refined and and designs overall have been refined. So again, I think it's just, hey, this was the first shot and like anything, you know, there's things like that in Star Wars, things like that in Star Trek, any long running franchises, especially when you try to do something like this, which is, you know, sci-fi you're going to get things that over a long period of time, they look odd when you look back on it. Right. Right. So, you know, particularly I think the gun tank really sticks out as just really a bit silly. Um, and I think they actually get rid of the gun tank in the compilation movies. Isn't it? There's just a second gun cannon. If I recall correctly, <laughs> speaking of silliness though, even some of the Xeon vehicles, just the, the sort of bubble canopies, the bubble cockpits yeah. that are just uh, the only way you can explain it away in your head cannon is that Minoski particles, make you want to have such a huge field of vision and be that exposed <laughs> because otherwise it's just it, it, it's so wacky it's like it's like a lego vehicle you know <laughs> yeah it feels very jetsony to me yeah that's a great way to put it yeah just glass from waist high up <laughs> yeah but how did you feel you know, within the context of the show how did you feel about the zaku because that that's like our main adversary here i think it's great for what it is and what we are now with mobile suits, especially mono-wise, it's such a solid design. It's got a simplicity to it, but um, you know enough details to really make it sinister or villainous in its own way. The mono-wise, the, the sort of rounded spikes it has, it's asymmetrical. Everything else on um, in the Federation is always symmetrical. It's a good heel to the face. It's all the bad guy things, right? The asymmetry, 
You even got the bad guy colors. So if you go back to American comics in the early days, all bad guys were typically green, purple, those kind of darker colors. The bad guys were not wearing white, blue, that kind of stuff. So it feels very bad guy, the, the monolai especially. And like you said, the spikes, that just looks evil, right? Yeah, it's definitely not something designed for um, defense. <laughs> <laughs> I thought they did a good job, though, when the goof was introduced. I was like, oh, man, that thing is terrifying relative to the Zaku, right? It had bigger spikes. It had the whip, the finger cannons. What did you think of the goof? This version of it still isn't like one of my more favorite mobile suits, but I like how it clearly fought completely differently. It seemed faster. It had to always fight close up compared to the Zaku's, which some of the time, depending on who's piloting it, it's essentially just a turret. <laughs> you know, the guy right. just holds a right. rifle and he hopes for the best. But the Gus were always moving quick and always, you know, using that that heat rod whenever they had a chance. Yeah, that heat rod was pretty cool. We can't move on from the Guff without me mentioning that Makube mentioned that he had like a, a troop of Guffs or something, which is, is very close to the Goof Troop, which is the old <laughs> Disney show. So Makube's Guff Troop had me cracking up. Yeah. <laughs> Going back to characters, Isaac. So I thought Amuro was is a great character. If I compare him to somebody like Kira from Seed, I just feel like there's so much more to say about Amuro. I just feel like he has so much more of a personality because he's so much more of like a flawed person. Yeah. I mean, do you think he was written that way intentionally or is it more like, well, looking back, this is how we see things now? <laughs> um, No, I think he's just, I mean, we you know we watched Seed fairly recently. I, I think Amuro's just a much better character um, right away we know he's a bit of a nerd technical person he chooses to get into the Gundam after finding the manual and seeing those civilians get killed to kind of help so you know so he makes a choice right it didn't just happen to him you learn a lot about him throughout the show right he, he generally deflects praise towards himself and he he sort of blames his success at least for the first part on the Gundam's self-learning computer for, and he really progresses. He's not, like, super great in the beginning. He can't really hit anything at first, and then he becomes a better shot. He starts using two beam sabers, the shield, the javelin, and really anything. He shows good tactics. He keeps the sun to his back on Luna 2. He lands on Garma's gows as a way to take them out because he can't, you know, fly freely in the atmosphere. He even helps out on the white base. Remember, he moves the power around on the ship so they can launch the core fighter that one time. He gets out there and defuses the bombs. But then we do see him get more and more bratty a little bit, right? Because he's still pretty young. So he has growing dissatisfaction with others that they're not quite as good as him at their jobs. He's overtired, overworked. There's that one point which I think is shows he's an overall smart guy, but probably my grandma would have said he was too smart for his own britches. <laughs> Where the elders take over and they have Frau hostage and someone's mad at him that he doesn't show enough concern for Frau, but he's like, he's like, well, I've, there's already people handling that. I can't really help. Like, that's a very mature response. So I don't know. I just think he's, he's a much more opinionated protagonist than we usually get from some of the longer series. You know, if I look at Kira, Hiro, Mika... I don't think any of them really hold a candle to Amaro, Setsuna. I mean, maybe Camille, but I still think Amaro's on the top of the heap here. He definitely has an intelligence. The other ones don't. Some of them almost seem like, well, not that they're stupid, but it's just Amaro just has always been a few levels ahead of them. Either it's his new type abilities or it's just how technical he is working on the, the Gundam a lot. You don't get that a lot with all the other uh, pilots that we have. Yeah. I know one of your biggest questions, Isaac, is what would it take to make Amaro break bad? 
you know, what, what would it take to make Amuro a Titan? Do you think maybe the death of Frau Bo? I think, yeah, I think you're on the right track. I think it's something to do with either the death of Frau or his mom. Yeah, maybe like multiple people, really. That kind of, multiple people at the hands of Zeon. That would do it. People close to him. And you can watch that in Chrono Gundam <laughs> when we see Titan's Amuro. Yeah, when he has the, the entire Earth sphere uh, under his knee. Under the uh, the control of the, the Colony Laser Gundam. Ooh. Ooh, wow, that's a big Gundam, Isaac. Well. Does it shoot it like a gun? Probably. I'm sure it's some type of backpack thing. <laughs> what about Shar, Isaac? What are your thoughts on Shar? I mean, you're not generally a Shar fan, but within the context of the show, uh, how's he doing as a antagonist? Shar is almost like a mystery section of the series, right? Because you don't really know his motives. You know what he's done because you saw what he did at Garma. And mm-hmm. he, he's behind a mask. So there's almost like this subplot going on that's very mystery focused he doesn't come across as a hero because we haven't been able to sympathize with him so he's more of a straight-up villain really yeah i like the mystery angle he's very charismatic isaac he's he's very capable he's super smart (laughs) uh everyone except you believes that i don't know i feel like most shark clones have not been as successful who do you think the most successful shark clone is that's hard oh ralukuse okay Why, why is he the most successful He's the most successful because I think he got the closest to winning. Right. So he is he the only one that matches Char's capability? Because, like, for example, who are the other good ones, right? Like McGillis. McGillis Fareed. Iron Blood Orphans. Great show. But at the end of the day, McGillis' plan is terrible. Yeah, It doesn't work out. He really fell short. I still say La Crusade because um, Char wiped out the zombies. He won that. Right. La Crusade was seconds from getting his win. Yeah, and, and arguably, I mean, yeah. Kira only survived due to some plot armor. He, he took quite the beating in that battle. And like Zex, Zex had the cool factor, but he got beat both physically and mentally. Uh, physically by Hero and, and mentally by the Epion Zero system thing. Uh, Zex was still so confused switching sides during the war. That was very unshar. <laughs> right, Shar is very focused, right? Yeah, Atherin, even Atherin was... Well, he's switched sides too, now that I think about it, but <laughs> yeah, he might be the least Char of the Char clones, right? Because his father's still alive. <laughs> he's essentially just the red mobile suit pilot. Not really so much Char at all, because he's not really on a massive vendetta, even though that would have been a good angle um, because of what happened to his mother. Yeah, Atherin lacks direction, which is something Char certainly does not lack. No. I think Char being this mysterious, if you if you watch it from the beginning, if this was your first time, you'd you'd probably be almost sometimes more focused on what's going on with Char than than the regular white based crew. Yeah. Plus he has great lines, Isaac. Like blame this on the misfortune of your birth. That's fantastic. <laughs> Very dramatic. Yeah, and uh Royal Guard, how'd you know? It's the smell. <laughs> <laughs> how about Dagwin, your pal Dagwin? Dagwin uh, we haven't seen a lot of him yet. No, and, and we really won't. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Dagwin's something that kind of, if you're, if you're a Dagwin fan, you really have to go into the lore because uh, you get more of it that way. It's interesting that the first time we see Dagwin, it's when he's transitioning to like um, being way more behind the scenes, you know, essentially half retiring, right? Right. And so with that in mind, my Dagwin question for you is, so when he watches the Garma video from Girin, and, you know, he drops his cane and whatever. Because he's always seemed a little detached to me. Did Garma's death, did that really kill him? Is that when he gave up? 
and he just decided to cede control to Garen and Kaecilia. Like, Garmer was clearly his favorite. I think they even say that in this show, and we, we know that from other material as well. Is this when he realized that it wasn't worth it? Like, he had lost Garma? So, like, what was the point now? Yeah, I would even go as far as to say if, if he could, like, pick up a phone and call Revel, they probably would have started peace negotiations now, right? I don't see why not. Yeah, but... I feel like he lost his, his will to go forward with it. Yeah, at this point, he's just kind of counting the days, right? Because he even wanted, like, a small-scale funeral, remember? And they kind of talked him out of it. <laughs> yeah, he wanted a closed-ranks, family-only type thing, right? Yeah, and they're like, well, you know, that that sounds nice, but we had to think about, you know, the whole country, not just our family. <laughs> right, yeah. So I think the first time we see Dagwin is also the, the lowest we see Dagwin and when he's pretty much done. It gave us that great speech, though, the Garen speech. Yeah, yeah, Garen got his moment to shine and really kind of take the reins, literally, <laughs> from his dad and give us the obligatory I am evil speech that a lot of uh, villains do. The last thing on my list, Isaac, is a list of oddities. Oddities. The things that don't really make sense uh, looking back. <laughs> the burgers, the salt shortage, <laughs> the massive bridge in the white bay. <laughs> uh, how about the, remember when uh, Amuro first gets in the Gundam and they tell him to destroy the remaining components. He uses napalm shots to do this. They never bring back the napalm shots. <laughs> Maybe those were only like limited supply and he used them all, you know? <laughs> yeah, but, but I mean, it's essentially anti-Gundam rounds yeah. right? because he's, he's firing on Gundam components. So it kind of doesn't make sense because later on in the show, they can't destroy the damn thing. That might have been writing of the time, you know, Vietnam going out at the time, oh, the Vietnam absolutely. War. So they were like, well, they'd be like nowadays, you know, writing an anime series or something. And there's, and of course, there's drones in it, right? Oh, and, you know, there's an artificial intelligence. Oh, of course. And <laughs> yeah. No, 100%. Just, just relevance. There was one part where there were infrared security beams, which seemed like a very 60s, 70s James Bondian thing to me. Yeah, at, the, uh, at Luna 2. <laughs> the beams, like... That hangar may seem massive enough that the infantry didn't really need to worry about them, right? They could still go through. <laughs> yeah, Shara was just like, oh, just go, you know, go between the beams. Yeah, what difference does it make? I don't know. Uh, also at Luna 2, the Magellan was green. Yeah. Well, I don't think we ever see a green Magellan again. So that was a, again, uh, the world had not been built yet, but it's a Xeon color, so. Yeah, that was kind of weird, too. It made it seem like that was the only Magellan. Was that a Magellan prototype? Well, there was a lot of wording like that in this show in the beginning. Yeah. So maybe the first 10 episodes, they kept calling Shars Musai the Musai as if it was the only one. Yeah. And later on, Kaecilia, they're like on the battleship Guadin. Yes. You know, so yes. and, and even Hamon saying like, we'll take Zanzibar, you know, things like that. So they had, hadn't yet established that as a, the name of the class of ship. It's a silly thing, but which article you use before referring to the ship, you know, changes the, the meaning. So did you notice that Shars Musai, over his bridge windows, there's a very evil looking face? Over his, oh yeah, it's kind of a, well, I assumed it was a helmet, kind of a homage to him. Oh, could be, but it looks inherently evil. Like it's not a realistic military look. Again, I think it stems from the super robot, like, we, hey, we need this guy to look evil. Yeah, that, that's a good point too. Well, the only time we see it, I think it's him and Dozel. They're the only ones that have custom bridges. Dozel has kind of the more conehead type one. And mm, yeah. uh, Char's got his kind of mini helmet looking one. Dozel's Musai is pretty darn cool. Yeah. I wonder what ever happened to it. I assume it was destroyed at uh, Solomon. Probably, yeah. 
During Solomon, did he launch from his Musai? Didn't he launch from... The hangar bay in Big Zom. But he, he left from the fortress, right? Not from the Musai. Right, from the fortress. You can't, you can't fit the Big Zom on the Musai, so... I doubt it, unless they, like, I don't know, refitted his ship. <laughs> <laughs> it's extra big. Yeah. <laughs> Dozel size. Small, medium, large, and then Dozel. Dozel. Those will be their sizes at Gundam Land. <laughs> <laughs> and then the two things we are, you already mentioned, the one was the heat-proof film for the re-entry, which is gone once the compilation movies hit, and then the Gundam Hammer, which, that's just hilarious. Yeah, where does it go when they're not using it? Like on the backpack or something like that? Uh, I don't know. Maybe there's some rack that he stores it on. you think they'd learn how to use that more because, like, as a meteor hammer, you can keep people pretty far away. And the speed it moves at, you could probably pretty easily one-hit a cockpit of a Zaku. Yeah, and it doesn't use any ammo, right? You can just keep, keep reusing that thing. Maybe the chain will probably break, but... That definitely belongs more in Iron-Blooded Orphans than it does in the Universal Century. Yeah, the Iron-Blooded Orphans and its its lack of beam weaponry. <laughs> Isaac, do you have any thoughts on the on the gun cannon and the gun tank? Or the Gundam in general? I guess the, we haven't talked about the Federation suits. I mean, the gun cannon's really the weakest, and uh, that that's kind of been a universal belief, I think. But um, for what it is, and kind of understanding how they're just starting the show now, it's not completely terrible. You know, and it's good to see Hayato in there and uh, and Ryu. For the gun cannon, it doesn't always be in its role. You know, I noticed that it's not always being kind of medium range. Sometimes it's it has yeah. to get really close up. So I can see why it was phased out. <laughs> but I actually like the gun cannon's colors. Oh, really? It's a little too monotone for me, or like monocolored for me. I wish there was another color mixed in there, but, but you're you're on board with the red? Yeah, it's almost like a firefighter mobile suit, right? Like if it was shooting water. Wow. If it was shooting yeah, water, I... you think it was like a, a transformer named like, um, I don't know, a, a hydrant or something like <laughs> <laughs> You're totally right. It does look like a firefighter. That's very apt. Uh, what about the title suit, the, the Gundam, Isaac? I remember the head fin being wider. <laughs> don't you you know i mean we, we've obviously seen the gundam in so many different designs over the years what i did not remember was how a lot of the episodes in this first half the gundam has really weird proportions just a lot of animation errors it doesn't do it any favors that's for sure but it is very heroic right it's it's the optimus prime of one year more mobile suits there's a few scenes where Omro gets in the cockpit and it closes and the metal just seems so paper thin so the the animation at the time really didn't capture like just just the kind of mechanics and engineering that would really be needed. So I'm glad that's something that really went away with time as as things got more toned down and serious in the designs. But man, does it look great in Origin and the the trailer for uh, Kukuru's Doan's Island? Yeah, the uh, the Origin movie. Talk about what a fresh coat of paint can do for you, Isaac. I mean. This is the one that started it all, and it's a, kind of surprising how close they got it to being right, right? Yeah, you know. Yeah, I mean, a few things here or there. The show is still really good. I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed it a lot more than some of the more other recent things that we've watched. That's for sure. That's all I had on my list, Isaac. You got anything else, or you want to give our horrors for the first half? We should give our horrors for the first half. All right, I'll let you go first. So, for the first half of the show, as we're just getting started, going in blind and having seen it, I think I want to give it two different ratings. Okay. So if I went in blind at just watching this, I'd give it four out of five horrors. But seeing it again at a rewatch, I almost feel like I'm appreciating it more. So I give it five out of five horrors. Wow, look at that. Look at that score. 
I'm pretty much in line with you. So I think I would give the first half a solid 8 out of 10 Haros. I think it's a good show. It's definitely not perfect. You know, the animation does drag it down. And I say that as someone who the animation doesn't really bother me that much. I don't really hold it against the show. That's just how the show was. You really can't do anything about that. But I also just think we haven't really hit the meat of the plot yet. The back half of this show is where things get really good. But it was still a great show up to this point. It just, we haven't really hit the main arc yet. And so I think an eight is a, is a pretty fair score. But like you said, what did you say? It was an old sweater? Right. It was like a comfortable old sweater. <laughs> yeah. I think I texted you when I started watching it. And I, I said it was, it was like sitting back in your favorite recliner that you yeah. you know you haven't sat in for a long time uh, or like when you get home after a long trip and and you sit down and you're like yes this is how things should be i'd even say it's like um playing old video games you used to play as a kid right. you know you put yeah. it back on and like just for nostalgia it's like it, it gets a boost in points yeah you got to pay your respects for the uh, the original here so without the rx78 you know we wouldn't have anything else so i agree I agree. Two different scores, 8 out of 10 objective and, and 10 out of 10 because it's freaking Mobile Suit Gundam, man. <laughs> I'd have to say it's required watching for all Gundam fans, but I wish there was like an opening text like, well, you know, this was made a long time ago, so the animation is going <laughs> to be a certain way, the sound effects, a lot of the characterizations. G- give it time, you know, view it, view it and enjoy it for what it was. It's great and different in its own way. But you know what? I'm looking forward to the next one. I want to see how the series ends and how I feel in totality after viewing it all. Yeah, there's so many big things still to come. New types. Lala Soon, one of your favorite characters I know. <laughs> you know, the GM, the Dom, Isaac. We haven't seen the Dom yet. We haven't even seen the Tristars. They, they've been rumored, but we haven't seen them. So all that and more on the back half of Mobile Suit Gundam 0079, listeners. So send us your thoughts. When was the last time you watched 0079? What are your thoughts on the series? Does the dated animation really bother you? Does it prevent you from enjoying the show? Uh, what do you do when people ask you, oh, which Gundam should I watch? How do you recommend the original series? Do you tell them to watch the series, compilation movies, a manga? How do you deal with this dated animation problem that we have? What do you got for the listeners, Isaac? What I've got for them is an apology. Sorry for the long delay. <laughs> Life got in the way, things happened, but you know what? We're back to our regular upload schedule. Woohoo! Yeah. All right, listeners, stay safe out there. Isaac, take it away. All right, listeners, before you go to sleep tonight, put your hands together, get on your knees, look up at the ceiling, and hail Zeon. Good night, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>